Welcome to a special long-form episode of the First Corner Podcast. We measure the greats of the modern era. The first episode stacks up Senna, Schumacher, Alonso and Hamilton, and what separates them from the good. And yes, Ben has a new microphone. Strap yourselves in and enjoy the ride. The most gifted drivers of all time, who are they? And um, I think there's this, there's a perception that Senna is the most gifted. That's like the politically correct answer. And that Schumacher was amazingly gifted, but he was like, he's a German, so he's more efficient, so he's more methodical, so he's better prepared, all of these cliches. He introduced this element of fitness into the sport that wasn't there previously. So that was another advantage that he had. Um, but that seems to be the perception that n- in terms of natural ability, Senna would trump Schumacher. I I almost don't want to admit it, but I think it's the other way around. I actually think Schumacher is the single most gifted uh, F1 driver ever to sit in a, a cockpit. Um, I just, I think, I think with Senna, there was actually an element of his sheer intensity and personality drove him to like get the absolute most out of his car and you allied that with an incredible natural ability but uh from from where i'm sitting um in terms of pure out and out natural ability to just step in any machine drive the wheels off it uh, extremely fast um i i don't think uh Senna necessarily would have actually been better than schumacher um, okay I don't let's, know. What, what do you think about that? Let's let's try and put some, like, uh, there's always a bit of cloudiness when you compare certain years. But if you go back from 1993 to 1994, um, like at the time, Schumacher would have been in Benetton, a similarly powered Benetton in 93. Senna would have been in a similarly powered McLaren. Um, Schumacher was a proven race winner by the end of 93. That style of racing was... You had a full tank of fuel. It had to last to the end of the race. You had to do as minimal pit stops as you could to get through the race. That was that's how that was book A of how to win a Grand Prix in 1993. Mm-hmm. Um, 1994, just tying back into the point you're making about Schumacher's fitness, um, refueling came in. So that now meant that in between the pit stops, you were carrying as light a fuel load as possible, which made the car much lighter, which meant it could be pushed harder. So it Formula One became went from being a sort of mini marathon into a series of sprints over a Grand Prix distance. Mm-hmm. And in 1994, okay, if you look at from Senna, who'd been racing, pretty much he had at the record of pole positions, he, he had that he still always had that out and out speed and out, out and out talent in qualifying. He could still string that one great lap, even when the car wasn't great. Like if you look, he took all three poles in 1994 in the Williams, which at the time was not. Uh, a very very peaky car to drive i.e was given grip one way or the other and schumacher in 94 i think in the races it really drove home just how hard senna had to drive you see i think that's all true but i also think that the williams barring some like flaws in its early design actually was the faster car in terms of peak 
downforce. It's just that it was harder to drive. Like it's just I, a very exaggerated version of I think what we're seeing this year with the Red Bull versus the Merc, and that the Red Bulls ultimately yeah. faster but harder to drive. Exactly. And if you look at the teammates that uh, Senna had in '93, like you could nobody really got near him. The only exception to that was Hakkinen. Towards the back end of '93, he started to qualify Senna, but in the races, Senna generally was you know he was able to string Hakkinen had only done one season with Lotus he was a very young rookie didn't quite have all the data points together had a few accidents etc because and because you say that you see is like like Hakkinen got into that McLaren in Portugal 93 and now qualified Senna like straight away and just to tie that back into the next point then 94 the teammates were Damon Hill for Ayrton Senna and Schumacher at the time had JJ Leto who was meant to be a good Finnish Formula One driver at the time and he had Jos Verstappen after that, and then Johnny Herbert in '94. But the 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 chasm between the teammates was greater on Schumacher's side than Senna's side. Let's say. Yeah, although I, I I'd say Senna had the tougher teammates. I guess that that's one of the only. It's not a caveat, but it's one of the only things you'd look at with Schumacher when you, you analyze the quality of his teammates. He absolutely destroyed them. Fair enough, but um, they I don't think they were as high as. Alonso, for example, if you look at the the careers that Alonso has just completely <laughs> sent packing, um, like what he did to Kimi Raikkonen in twenty fourteen was, wait, and and also Massa. I mean, uh, Massa in two thousand and eight and two two thousand and nine had carved out this uh, perception of himself that he he had joined this sort of elite club of racers. Um, and obviously, post his accident, 2009, that, that throws up a big question mark and all this. But 2010 through to 2012 with Alonso, or was it was it 2013? Yeah, 2013. Yeah. Oh, like, it, it completely undid the perception that had been built up about Massa. And I guess that's what I'm getting at, is that if you, you look at one driver who completely destroyed teammates and who destroyed teammates' reputations. I, I can't think of anyone really better than Alonso. Maybe Senna. Um, I don't know. But I guess, yeah, to bring it back on, sort of on, on point was, uh, I guess that's the one thing I'd say that's, that Schumacher doesn't have, is, is you don't look at this series of teammates that he completely annihilated who were really, really highly thought of before that. Like, you know, we... Barrichello, yeah, very, very capable driver, but it, it, he was never regarded as world championship material, really, you know, bar the, the very early days. Yeah, I, I guess with, with Schumacher, it's a combination of uh, the lore of what we heard, like in interviews and stuff about the, the, the 95, that 95 Benetton, that he won nine Grand Prix in, in a 16 race season. <laughs> it's just astonishing. Like that's a better return rate than Lewis Hamilton in most of his championship years. To um, give a bit to give a bit of context to that ninety-five hammer blow that Schumacher delivered, it was the ninety-five Williams was regarded as by far and away the strongest car on the grid with Damon Hill and David Coulthard. And they like they should have won both drivers in the Structures Championship easily. The mm-hmm. next thing then is Schumacher was in a similarly powered Benetton, but that was people didn't quite know where that stood. Uh, in terms of performance, it was reckoned to be about the third fastest car because when Schumacher did a test in the 1995 Ferrari, yes. he drove yeah. it and he basically said before he joined Ferrari in 96 in that evil that evil car of 96 that they designed, he said, I could have won the championship in this. 
he said it was quicker than his Benetton. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's rare that you'd see, but like that was just the, the level that, that Schumacher was driving at that year. He, it was like the first year where all the dots had joined up after his rookie years. And it was just, you know, and, and if yeah. you ask some of the top journalists, I think it's actually, I think Mark Hughes goes in a podcast that what's the most dominant uh, display you've ever seen by a driver. And he quotes Schumacher 95. It's funny, I um, as you know, I'm a huge tennis fan, a huge Roger Federer fan, and there's a there's an, an almost parallel argument that goes on in the tennis world about uh, a weak era. Um, Roger Federer's won twenty Grand Slams, and he won, I think, sixteen of them in the space of six years, and then he won his his remaining uh, four in the space of uh, what ten years. So, you know, it was very, it was condensed into that early spell. But there was this argument that the reason Federer was winning all of his Grand Slams in his dominant days was because there, he was taking part in a weak era that he didn't have any rivals or the rivals he he, he would then later have just hadn't uh, got up to speed yet. They weren't old enough. They hadn't fully developed. And I do see a parallel there. Even as a Federer fan, I think there is a lot of truth in that argument. Um, and I see that with Schumacher as well, in that after Senna died, and the fact that Hakkinen was not yet in a, a properly competitive car, there was a lean era. And it's it's perverse in a way, because what it meant was that Schumacher's sheer domination was taken as evidence that uh, it was easy, when actually what he was demonstrating was, uh, okay, when you take away Ayrton Senna, I will completely mop the floor with the competition, even if you give me the second fastest car, even if you only give me the third fastest car, I'll still, at the very least, show that I am the best, you know? And that never really went away then until sort of 2005, 2006, you know? That aura of just Schumacher being the absolute undisputed king. Obviously, yeah, the... 98, 99 seasons with Hakkinen. Uh, but I think people in the know understand that those were rocket ships, those cars, and that if Schumacher had been in them, they would have just won by an even greater landslide. No offense to the Hakkinen fans, but it's kind of the way I see it. To be fair with, with Hakkinen, it's only when the car came good that he came alive. Like, in 97, he had the greatest years against Coulthard, you know, and Coulthard wasn't anything special. But... I think with Mika, he was so long in Formula 1, he was definitely getting a bit jaded. He hadn't won a race. In 1995, he was quite good in that that pretty bad McLaren as well. In 94, he was pretty quick against Martin Brundle, who at the time was respected well against Schumacher. Hakkinen was kind of a fair-weather guy. Um, he yeah. needed the wind in his sails to really get the most out of it. Yeah, he, he would fly high. And I, I think the parallels between him and Vettel are fairly appropriate with the whole Adrian Newey thing. And also, they like if you remember some of Vettel's like qualifying laps, they were spectacular, and they reminded me of what was that qualifying lap that Hakkinen did at Emola? Was it '99 or was that 2000? Where he he had that squirm of oversteer crossing the line. 2000, I believe, and scored pole at the death. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, in in like uh, if that was Michael Bay directing that, he would be like perfect, you know, and. All the, the fans, the sort of Fast and Furious sort of watching crowd would be like, oh, you see, he's the fastest. Look at that. He's, he's almost out of control, and yet he set pole position. When, when in, in reality, fact, he, was, he probably he, lost a bit of time there. He lost about two tenths of a second, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and it's like I see a lot of that in uh, some of Vettel's laps where 
he nearly lost control of the car, but he just he, he had so much of this just Adrian Newey downforce uh, that he, he was just able to sort of uh, do a bonsai through it, and it was spectacular. Yeah, I think when when it comes to guys like Schumacher, that's all a bit beneath him, frankly. I think he he, he wouldn't need the car to be visibly out of control like that. He would be he would have it on the ragged edge before it actually spills over. You know what I mean? Um, and he, he just sat on that ragged edge for longer than pretty much any other driver could, both in terms of like laps in a single race and just across the span of his career. Um, yeah, which then sort of brings us to really how the modern day grits, such as Hamilton, such as Verstappen, uh, I think I'm going to say, and Alonso stack up against these guys. And my perception, I, I believe that there's a tier one, which is Senna and Schumacher. And I don't believe that's romanticism on my part, like saying, oh, you know, it's because they're the two greats and, it, you know, it would be wrong to to say Hamilton could be better. No, I, I genuinely, on the evidence that has been put forward, um, I don't think that Hamilton has quite the ultimate pace. I think he would be missing like half a tenth, a tenth on those guys. And with Verstappen, about the same, I think. But we were talking about this earlier. Um, I think what Hamilton and Verstappen both do possess uh, that Senna and Schumacher had is that ability to just improvise and retain again it's like they they lose less performance in suboptimal conditions is what i'm saying we saw that uh it displayed to perfection really at this this uh portimao where hamilton can be out qualified you know on a given lap he can be beaten he's not so superior that you know the geometrically he's he's not driving a, a single lap of a circuit that much better than anyone else that he can't be out qualified but it's a different story in the race when the grip levels are varying when the balance is shifting uh when he's on different tires from stint to stint like he was just he was always gaining on Bottas, and then he was always pulling away from him and you can take him to the bank for that like he will do that every single grand prix near enough and what that is is again it's that thing it's like so the grip is no longer a static target they don't know exactly where the grip is so it's more of an approximation your approach to the lap you know it's more about sort of just your natural ability to kind of roll with the punches and so um, with, with the grip changing you're talking about as the tire wears down from the start of the stint up to the pit stop to the end so that so just to list out a couple of factors there you've got your tire would degrade by is from maybe one second a lap slower at the end of a 15 lap stint compared to the start. You have the track grip changing all the time, depending on the weather and the temperature. Mm -hmm. That means the grip is changing throughout the race and mm -hmm. it's linking up those data points every single lap with, as you say, with your approximation, that's kind of where the absolute best drivers can instinctively know either by feel of what the car is doing from corner to corner, lap to lap. Uh, that's where they string those data points together better. And that's what adds up to, let's say, a 10 second difference from the start of the stint to the end yes. of the stint, let's say, between yeah. Hamilton and Bottas. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, oh, there's so many different ways. Like, I, I use that archery analogy. Like, if you think of it like it's a static target and you put these 20 archers together, uh, who's going to hit the most bullseyes? I, I'd say, you know, it's. I, I, I'd say 
almost anyone could come out on top of that. I, I would I'd be surprised if someone had so much better hand-eye coordination and aim that he could consistently dominate something like that. But when you've got something where there's more variables, uh, when you've got varying conditions, so when you've got a moving target and you, you don't you can't prepare exactly for it, then you have to fall back on uh, your natural ability. The thing that drew you to sitting in a go-kart and pound around a, a go-kart track in the first place. Um, yeah, you're, you're just seeing that level of talent. It, it finally gets uh, an outlet in the race. You know, they can really actually display how good they are at just um, at making the most of whatever given situation that they're put in. Yeah, and I, I guess what I'm saying is I see that trait uh, that was present in Senna and Schumacher. It's definitely there in Hamilton and Verstappen. And I think to a slightly lesser degree, Alonso. But that's why Alonso is probably the most interesting one to discuss out of all these guys. Fernando Alonso never has had the best car in all of his career. Like there's rarely, yeah. there's maybe some flashes of moments where in 2006, 2007, those two cars he drove in those times, there might have been phases of the season where it was quicker but generally it wasn't the fastest car of either of those seasons, let's say. And the, the two years he won the World Championship, definitely not. But still, if you look again, let's take Alonso's first World Championship, for example. He had Giancarlo Fisichella as his teammate. That was the first year whereby the tyres had to last the entire Grand Prix. The, so you, the only pit stops they would have made was for fuel. So the fuel loads would have gone down, but the tires would have changed. Would have they had to keep the same set for the entire Grand Prix, mm-hmm. and that was only for 2005. And if you look at the the gap between Fernando Alonso and Giancarlo Fisichella throughout the races, uh, it was just absolutely you know, no comparison. And Fisichella at the time was regarded as an about to be world champion when he turned out to be a journeyman. Yeah, and <laughs> exactly, it, it talk about reputation destruction again, Alonso. Yeah, exactly. Like if you look at the Japanese Grand Prix 2005 is um, and the Australian Grand Prix 2006, there's two uh, very key moments there that made stand out that Alonso was really transcending that Renault into where it sh- above to where it should have been. Mm-hmm. In 2005, the McLaren was the fastest car, and the Renault would have been probably the second fastest car with the Ferrari interweaving between it whenever the Bridgestones worked. Yeah. which was very rare, only maybe two races that year. They were anyway, they might look slightly competitive. If you looked into Suzuka 2005, Alonso started at the back of the grid and he finished third in the Grand Prix. Fisichella started close enough to pole position. Was he on pole or was it, is, was it um, a Toyota on pole? No, he was on pole position, wasn't he? Uh, so it was either him or Ralph, but yeah. Yeah, yeah I think Ralph Schumacher might have got the pole and Fisichella was literally more or less set up to win the race because back then they qualified with the race few. Yeah, um, by turn but, one he was in the lead anyway. More or less, and and yeah. yeah. So basically, uh, Alonso had climbed up throughout the race, overtook everyone like as fast competitors. He he was going through the field at the same rate Kimi Raikkonen was, and mm-hmm. just by account of having to let by the Red Bull by making a slightly dodgy overtake at the chicane, he cut the chicane a little bit, and he had to give the place back. Uh, yeah. And he stuck, spent a few laps behind the Red Bull. Had he had not to do that, Alonso could have very well won that Grand Prix. Yeah, um, his fastest lap was, I think, only about half a tenth off of Raikkonen's. And like that 
McLaren that year was aerodynamically, no question, it was superior to the uh, yeah. Renault. And of all the circuits where you could demonstrate that, Suzuka. And yet Alonso was like within a tenth of that. Incredible. Yeah, it was just outstanding. Yeah. And then, and then in two thousand, in that race, like Fisichella had threw away the race win. He was lapping up to a second a lap slower throughout the entire race compared to Alonso. Yeah. And then he lost the race in the last lap. Um, two thousand and six Australian Grand Prix, third race of the year. Alonso, I believe, was out in front, and Fisichella was laundering down somewhere fifth, sixth, seventh, wherever he was. And Alan Permain comes over the team radio. Giancarlo, you need to step up the pace. You cannot be a second a lap slower than Fernando. Like, how demoralizing is that to hear on <laughs> your pit radio? Yeah, and the thing is, he's not a second lap slower. He was quite right in, in giving him that, uh, yeah, that hurry-up call. I mean, I th- there's another thing to, to drive in, um, especially in the race that's important, is it's more of a character thing. I don't know if it's so much to do with natural talent. It's more to do just how you apply yourself, and that is just concentration. And I, there are drivers who definitely, they, they, they drift off, they, they fall asleep. Like, I mean, I think we've all experienced it when, if you go for a run, uh, say, say you go for a 5K run and you do that every week, is your exertion level the exact same throughout the start of the race to the end of the race? And, yeah, you know, at what point it, are you it, going, you're going through the motions a little bit, let's say? Yes, you, you zone out. It's, we're all only human. And I think with Alonso, he he's just this guy who's just like, right, he just jumps into whatever it is that he's doing, like fully committed, and he just doesn't let up. It's, I don't know, again, it's like if it wasn't in Formula One, maybe it'd be something else. Maybe it'd be chess or something, and he'd be so much better at chess than someone else with the equivalent IQ of his because he's just so good at maintaining his concentration and just not letting up. Whereas Fisichella, it's like, yeah, geometrically, he can drive the lines on a uh, on a, a track almost as well as anyone else can. But you know, it, maybe he just drifts off during the race. It's it's not that simple. But there is that element, and I don't. You could you could argue that is to do with how gifted you are. But I think that's almost that's more of a. It's not a like a driving gift. That's just something to do with like you and your attention span, um, and your just your approach to things. You know. And I think that that's one thing about Alonso is I think he's like a smidge less naturally talented than uh, Alonso and Verstappen at uh, the pure activity of driving a race car around a track. But uh, I think what he brings to the table is just this this character trait of just relentlessness and this in like real taste for battle. And he just enjoys like... The idea of pummeling, you know, just pounding around and and putting together ten successive qualifying laps that are each as fast as each other. I think he loves that sort of thing. He lives for for doing things like that. You know, ever since ever since Alonso came into Formula One, that was that was that was him. It was just always coming forward. I I never forget watching the footage of an onboard Alonso in a minority in two thousand and one, which was. We talk about good and bad cars being separated by a second or two. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 2001, the Minardi was something to the tune of five seconds a lap slower than the fastest car. And I'll never forget watching the Spanish Grand Prix and this little black Minardi hounding the Benetton of Fisichella. I was like, who is driving that car? And there was Alonso <laughs> trying to get past a Benetton, which was at least two seconds quicker than it. 
and that was in a slightly yes tire war was was in full swing then but those that minardi was of an ancient design anywhere near contemporary it was essentially a two-year-old car that was racing around with a with an engine that was 100 horsepower down on everyone else mm-hmm. and it was fighting at benetton for six mm-hmm. for 16th place and he was absolutely ringing with no driver aids by the way the minardi had no traction control it had no automatic gears it had no launch control it was all alonso's acrobats acrobatics trying yeah. to get himself ahead of the little benetton and um and 2003, I believe, or 2002, 2002, he took a year out. 2003, uh, the Monaco Grand Prix that year, again, you know, strung together the laps to leapfrog himself four or five places before the pit stops. Uh, he was behind Coulthard, Trulli, and a couple of other drivers, and just he went longer and just strung out the consistent laps and leapfrogged everyone. And he was all since since Alonso, when Alonso's in a race, he's always there's always a sense that he might always qualify at the front, but there's always a sense of Alonso moving forward. It's like, what was that button quote? He's like, if he's behind you, he's chasing you. And if he's in front of you, he's pulling away. It's, it's yeah. that simple. Yeah. Jensen Button was his teammate in 2015 and 16. And that's, you know, that's how he described Alonso in the yeah. race. It's just the relentlessness of the man. And I again, look, if you, you only have to look at, fair enough, we had 2012, in a weird way, was kind of a leveler because of how bad the tires were. Yes. Um, in 2011, let's say, um, the Red Bull was just so dominant, and regardless of what it could do, it was it was pegged back a little bit by the regulation changes from 2010 to, or 2011 to 2012. In 2012, the, uh, that Ferrari, I think we were all laughing at it in Australia. I think we were all saying just how bad the Ferrari looked. Mm. And it was probably in the region of the fifth fastest car in Australia, let's say. And he, he won the second race in Malaysia. Uh, but the, the standout race for me that year was, uh, even though it even though it was Formula Formula Slow Bicycle Race, you know, how long can I make my tires last? Mm. Even in those races, like, that's where, weirdly enough, there were some drivers who struggled to restrain themselves from pushing so hard. Yeah, this this ties into what I'm saying is that like he will apply himself wholeheartedly and properly to whatever task he's given, and I think Hamilton kind of railed against this style, uh, and rightly so in a sense. It's not as pure. It's uh, it's not as you know what I mean. It, it's not as enjoyable. Uh, I don't think it's what people think of when they think of racing as nursing your tires. But Alonso didn't care. It's like right, how do I win? Okay, I just have to ration out my grip across the stint, you know, very uh, judiciously, and he just did that like better than almost anyone. Yeah, there's and there's something in that the, the tenacity of the man throughout some of the races in 2012 is, is, was incredible to watch because he was under a lot of high pressure situations and he came out on top. An underrated win of Alonso's was Hockenheim 2012, and Chris talks about it a lot as well. It's a kind of an underrated win. The McLaren and the Red Bull were the faster cars, but he outraced them in, in dry conditions with fair and square. Yeah. Uh, what like, fair enough? It might there was an element of measurement with your tires and that kind of thing. Uh, there was no, also like he, he balanced things perfectly. So in in the early laps uh, or a safety car restart, he would go banzai. Like if you remember Valencia, what he did there. So it's like he would strategically use his grip where it counted for the most. And then, yeah, you had more cagey races like Hockenheim where he was he was just about able to keep the otherwise faster cars at bay through just his sheer, yeah, just savviness and racecraft. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, like in 2013 then, obviously the, it, it, the, the car was better, but the, the delta to the Red Bull was just too great. And 
just just be aware for some listeners in case you aren't aware what we mean by an Adrian Newey car is basically any Formula One car or an Adrian Newey championship. It's any Formula One car that's got such a big uh, performance advantage, mainly because Adrian Newey has designed it. Mm-hmm. And um, that applies to the Williams, the McLaren of the 90s, and then the Red Bull into the late 2000s, into the early 2010 era with Vettel won four championships. So yeah. um, just to give that as a benefit. Um, so then for 2014, we'll, to go back to Alonso, 2014, um, we had this, he was paired up against Raikkonen and having destroyed Felipe Massa, who would have been Raikkonen's teammate in 2007, uh, 2008, you know, the Raikkonen strikes me as a driver who it's almost like once he got the world championship, he just never really had to apply himself. He don't, he had proved him to himself and he didn't, he, he turns up on weekends and it's almost like he'll wake up. What? Oh, I'm in a race here. Oh, Jesus. Drive along yeah. there. It's it's like that a- Raikkonen. Um, but 2014, right? Yeah. The, Alonso and Raikkonen were paired together finally at Ferrari. And there was, there was these, there was this kind of consensus that, oh, right. Alonso's really up against it with a teammate like Raikkonen. Because Raikkonen had just came off the back of a very strong 2013 in the Lotus, True. and uh, the he Lotus won, in 2013. Won the opening race of that year, or was that He won. Yeah, he won. Uh, he look since he, since Raikkonen made his comeback, he took a couple of years off. He was off 2010 and 2011. Made a comeback in 2012 with Lotus. Uh, that Lotus happened to be designed by James Allison, who is now the Mercedes designer. Uh, they designed a very tire compliant car for the regulations and Lotus got several podiums and he was mixing it up with the top guys. And um, there's a pretty strong argument to be made now that if you'd put Alonso in that Lotus back in 2011 in place of say Robert Kubica or whatever, 2012, 2013, Alonso could have had a title winning car there and he could have might've yeah. made the difference where he which, like what he did with Ferrari, much like in the way Schumacher made the difference with the Benetton back in 95 yeah, and, and much like the way Alonso made the difference with that car, with the Ferraris of those years. So, mm-hmm. in 2014, then um, big regulation change. Uh, the cars were gained about 80, 90 kilos in weight. They gained. They had a totally do, different kind of engine. Their aerodynamics were massively reduced. Uh, the Ferrari had designed a very front end style car, but no, with no rear downforce to to suit it. It was a pretty. It was not. It's definitely one of Ferrari's poorer cars, but. It was the kind of car that was changing balance throughout the corners. Like if there's one, if there's only one slim shot of that 2014 season, is that they they had so little downforce that was they didn't look spectacular on track. The drivers were often, particularly not not the Mercedes or the Red Bull, but the other cars were often having to be backed into corners and handbrake pulled up around certain hairpins just to get them to rotate. Alonso, if you watch him driving around a practice session in Abu Dhabi, which was probably the last race of that season, there's an onboard session of, of Alonso and I urge anyone to go watch it, driving around Abu Dhabi in the third sector. And I mean, the car is doing everything wrong. It's it's sliding, it's understeering. Alonso is literally sawing at the wheel like a rally driver but the car is staying on point and staying on line it's not sliding offline it's not like out of control it's like the car is perfectly lined up for the corner and alonso is literally sawing at the wheel like but the car is still staying on the same trajectory it's understeering and it's he's getting entry oversteer mid corner understeer and then he get power oversteer at the end through all in one corner and you could see him almost exasperated that this is what i have to deal with um, and he just does it. He still does it. You know, I, I think that is literally the one of the biggest differences between him and other drivers is that I think they all intuitively understand that, oh, right, so like I'd have to 
this car's a dog. If if I were to go fast in this, I would have to hacksaw at the wheel and my arms would fall off by the end of the Grand Prix. So they're always like, no, <laughs> I refuse to race like that. Whereas Alonso's like, oh yeah, that, that's how you drive this car. So he just does it. You know, it's like a, a, a dog chasing a car. It doesn't know why it's doing it. It's just like, it ha- feels this urge to just do it. So it just goes after it, regardless of how it's feeling. And the same thing with Alonso, he just... Like it, it, it's it's no obstacle to him if he has to drive it in this crazy, ridiculous way that no other driver would put up with. If it's the fastest way around the track, so be it. And true enough, like I, I don't think um, I can't think of any other car driver combination which has the same optics as Alonso in the cockpit of his Renault cars and, and the Ferraris. Like just how much steering he he must have burned about an extra five hundred calories over every other driver. Uh, yeah, in the race he was just so busy, and you can see that it's it is suboptimal. There's, there's no way it's uh, it's the, the 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 ultimately fastest way to drive that car in a single lap. But it was ob- he obviously just had it set up in such a way. Like when it was the the Renaults, it was uh, obviously more rearward biased, so he would just use that understeer to to get out of the corners so much traction just like a rocket ship um and then when it was the ferraris in uh sort of between 2010 to yeah 2013 very um, high steering ratio that those cars had yes and uh it, it seemed though it seemed to be again it was good for its balance it was like uh it was secure in the high speed stuff and it, it looked after its tires you know, because it wasn't uh, so pointy and sliding around at the back. But what that meant in order to get the front end into these corners and manhandle it through the exit of, of them, um, you needed so much work on the steering wheel, which he he did. And as I say, I can't think of any other driver or car combination where I've seen that, you that know. Range, that range of adaptability. Like the, to give a little bit more context to those two types of cars the the Renault's rear bias meant that its weight its weight was distributed mainly on the rear of the car most cars would have a sort of aim for a 45 55 weight distribution towards the rear as in percentage of weight on the car towards the rear the Renault's of 2004 5 and 6 had a very unusual distribution whereby they were more like 60 40 and mm-hmm. what, towards the rear and what that meant was that, that there was no weight on the front of the car to push it into the track apart from the front wing and the downforce pushing it in so in slow corners what would often happen is is that once the driver smashes the throttle what would happen is a thing called power understeer whereby the driver's turning the wheel he's putting the throttle down but nothing's happening he's he's having to turn the wheel more um luckily for alonso the well, say luckily, but this is what Alonso exploited of that deficit that the car had. That Fisichella didn't probably. I'd never seen Fisichella drive the same way. No. Um, he would. He'd get to the. He would steer into the apex of the corner at a normal geometric small angle, and all of a sudden, once he reached the midpoint of the corner, Alonso would just completely yank the wheel almost 180 degrees. Well, more like 90 degree, complete opposite in the middle of the corner. It looked so unusual. He would just turn, yank the wheel, and all of a sudden, you'd see the front tires vibrating, but you'd see the car going around the corner. As it turned out, that was the way to drive a rear-biased race car. If you ask, um, it's not the same thing, but if you ask Porsche race drivers who, dro- who race 911s, 
those cars' engines are over the back axle, and an inherent trait of a rear bias car is power understeer. But with the combination of that Michelin and the way Alonso could just adapt, it was just so unusual. And Martin Brundle at the time was saying, this is such an unusual driving style. I've never seen it before. And yeah. this is Alonso's style. It wasn't his style because, you, you, like you said, you go back to the you go back to the 2014 Ferraris and the 20 the, sorry the 2000 Ferrari, the late 2000 Ferraris which he drove um, when when he drove 2010 to 24, 2014 uh, the car didn't behave anything like that. But yet, it whatever was up with it or wrong with it from 2011, 2012, 2013, 2014, all the nuances of what was up and what was down with that car, Alonso had the range to be able to adapt to what it needed to get it around the track as fast as possible throughout, not just over, necessarily over one lap, but throughout a 15, 20 lap stint in the race. And that's where his yeah. talent just shines. Yeah, I think um, there's so many analogies you could use, but uh, I think of like um, his sheer relentlessness, it, it's, a, it's, it's partly to do with his character. It's also, as you've described, it's to do with his preference for, for how he would drive a car. Um, and it's kind of like, it's like a, if you have a big serve in tennis, you can get your first serve percentage higher if you take a little bit of speed off it. And I think that's kind of what we had with Alonso is that, um, he would almost deliberately sacrifice, uh, his one lap potential, um, in favor of being able to put in like 20 laps within a tenth of each other, even if they might be half a tenth, a tenth slower than what he would have been. Like, even if, if you compare his, his, his steering inputs versus Hamilton in 2007, and actually that brings me to the next point I was going to talk about. Um, Hamilton, it's a sign of his raw talent that he, that car was just so on the nose. Like he was trail breaking everywhere. And, uh, he was very minimal steering inputs because it was just so incredibly pointy that he could just, you know, cope without oversteer. Uh, and you could see with Alonso, he was he was driving it in a much more orthodox way, actually. So it's almost like if it's an oversteery car, he drives it in an orthodox in an orthodox way. If it's an understeery car, he um, he just he induces the the. If it's understeery, then it needs some more oversteer. Essentially, it has none, so he'll just induce it by just locking on the steering wheel mid-corner in that <laughs> wet, crazy way that he did. But um, what I was going to get to there with that year, 2007, there's two things to say about um, Alonso that year. I think um, his whole approach of like, you know, okay, I will willfully sacrifice a, a fraction of ultimate lap time in favor of just relentless consistency, finally met its match in 2007 in that Hamilton was not only incredibly consistent of what he did, but he was consistently driving that car, dancing it on the edge. And what Alonso was doing was like, he was he was driving with, with a margin, but it was so close to 100% that it didn't matter. It was still far closer to 100% over the course of a race distance than... Uh, compared to like Fisichella, for example, at Renault. Um, and suddenly he came up against someone who could drive it like to its ultimate potential, the car to its ultimate potential, and not lose control of it every other lap. And I think that kind of did a number on Alonso's mind. I think he was like, 
wow, so this this approach that I've been using, it no longer ensures success for me. You know, to yeah, again, just give it. A try, I'll try and keep it short. Yeah. Um, to give another small bit of context from that, from 2006 to 2007, Alonso swapped from Renault to McLaren. Um, Renault at the time were sort of on the on the downside. Michelin, who were their main tire sponsor, had left Formula One. A control tire was put in place for 2007, as in one tire supplier only, and that happened to be Bridgestone. Hamilton had raced in GP2 the previous year on Bridgestones and slick tires. Uh, in 2007, Hamilton was given acres and acres of kilometers testing, not anything unlike that what you get today. Like the the rookies have it much harder today to get into Formula One. And Hamilton had, I don't know how many kilometers he racked up in testing before his debut in that car. Quite a, yeah, like the, the amount of days testing they had in between January and March when the season began in 2007 was just insane. Today, this year, this current year, uh, something that a lot of people are missing is that only one, only, they only had three days of testing this year. The, the drivers who have swapped teams are struggling a little bit to get up to speed. Some people are quick to jump on the bandwagon and, and make judgment calls. I'd say give it the course of the season once everyone gets used to the cars and you will see the normal tra- normal traits resuming. To go back to the point, um, Hamilton uh, Hamilton made the point about the 2007-2008 the McLarens as being very weak on the rear. In terms of rear downforce, they were quite weak. Yes. As in, they, they, were, they had a lot of front-end downforce, uh, but not so good on the rear. Now, in 2007, that didn't matter so much because you had traction control to compensate for that. You know, you could somewhat mm. lean on the traction control. Um, Hamilton liked a sort of a, back in that day. He, you know, he was a very raw, talented driver. You know, fresh out of GP2, and um, as you say, he was rear-ending the car into the corners. Mm-hmm. And a, a lot you have to remember, Alonso came from this crazy understeer style. Uh, from a rear end, rear-engined Renault to a completely different animal of a McLaren, which was totally different to the the Renault he'd driven the previous year. Mm. That said, he still was able to manage some fantastic race-driven performances. Yeah, you have to look at in two thousand and seven. There were some races where he left Hamilton's, you know, br- uh, a bit breathless that year. Hundred yeah, percent. Um, yeah, I, I think it, it's almost fair to say with the sheer amount of preseason testing that Hamilton had, and Compare that with Alonso, the, the type of car he had been driving the preceding, what, three, four years, and then the switch to Bridgestone tires. Like this perception of Hamilton, a total rookie, stepping in and blowing the doors off Fernando Alonso uh, is a really uh, facile way of looking at it. it it's mis- It's not understanding. Yes, technically he was a rookie. Technically he was brand new. But in terms of their relative um, familiarity, with the the car uh, they had at their disposal and the tires, they were essentially both starting from they, scratch. Yeah, they really were. And there's that whole story about um, when they were pre-season testing the 2007 McLaren uh, with the Michelins initially. Uh, Mark Hughes says that uh, Alonso was like consistently nine tenths faster than Hamilton. That you know when he was driving it in that crazy way uh, that worked like on the Michelins. Uh, and then when they switched to Bridgestones, they were there was pretty much nothing in it. The, the Hamilton just looked a tiny fraction faster, but it was negligible. Um, but yeah, they like different a different topic really from the driving styles of them. But the other thing about Alonso that season because it is an interesting topic. Like you know, you if you're comparing these all time grits, 
the one season where they were together in the same car is the most uh, relevant thing to look at. And um, another thing that's worth saying about Alonso, and I, I think he was hard done by in this sense, is that he did walk into a team that I think just naturally wanted, uh, it just naturally sided with Hamilton. Um, that's how it looked to me from the outsider looking in. I was watching a, a couple of classic races there from the 2007 season, uh, and an interesting one was Malaysia. Um, have you seen that where Alonso won that race? He like he he left race Hamilton two of the for, season. Yeah, he left Hamilton for dead. It was a very dominant Alonso performance, and uh, the body language and stuff getting out of the car. It w- it was as if Hamilton won the race. Um, you know. Alonso got out of the car first. He was made to then wait for Hamilton, and then he went over to sort of congratulate Hamilton. And then when it came to, you know, the like the body language between Alonso and Ron Dennis and the rest of them, yeah, of course they were congratulating. They were patting him on the back. They were smiling, joking, you know, shaking his hand, all this stuff. But uh, you could just tell it was like once then Alonso moved on, it was like, oh, and there's our boy Hamilton. It was like they really – it's like – they had a brilliant working relationship with Alonso at that stage, but then there was this guy Hamilton who they just loved, and uh, I can it, see how how it it, it must be it, infuriating because it, yeah. let, let's compare the, let's compare this to a conventional let's make another little scenario. You often see Daniel Ricciardo pull off a, a crazy late breaking maneuver and pulls it off, and everyone goes, "Wow, amazing!" Wasn't that amazing throughout the entire race? But then you might have say someone like Verstappen who has done the entire Grand Prix start to finish flawless and has finished second. Yeah. And everyone looks to the flashpoint and go back to that race. Uh, what happened in that race between Hamilton and uh, was it Massa and then Raikkonen? You like, yeah, you- Hamilton <laughs> held the highlight reel. He had all the standout moments, but at the end of the day, he finished about 20 seconds behind Alonso. <laughs> exactly. Alonso completely blown the doors off him, but everyone remembers, wow, did you see Hamilton hold off? Massa, he made Massa look like a rookie. You know, that was the reaction at the time. And his his own team at the time gravitated towards it. Like they, they were all starting to get a bit excited about Hamilton. And it was the same a bit like uh, in Melbourne when he went around the outside of two cars in his first corner. And like everyone was like, oh, wow, wasn't that amazing? And they saw the Malaysia and I was like, oh, wow, wasn't that amazing? Like I'll be, I'll freely admit when I watched the Malaysia performance, I thought, wow, he like that, that was the standout performance to me. When in reality, he was Alonso completely took him to the cleaners in terms of race pace. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and, and Hamilton's role in that race. And sorry, third, sorry, in the first and third stints, Alonso was massively faster than Hamilton. In the second stint, Hamilton was a bit faster than Alonso. But like, you know, if it was a box, if it was a boxing match, um, yeah, it would have been unanimous. Like Alonso won that. And that's, that's reflected. He won the race. But still, it was, yeah, the perception was like, the stars born Hamilton because he had the, these incredible overtakes at the start of the race, and then how he made a muppet of uh, Massa when uh, Massa then went off. And Hamilton in in what was a slower car on the day than the Ferrari still fended them off to finish second. But yeah, that looks great. Like again, if it's like if Michael Bay was watching, he would be like, "Oh, that's the most interesting thing going on here. I'd like to make a film about that." But the 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 mundane reality is that while Hamilton was busy squirming out of the corners with this oversteery car for half the race uh alonso was just hooked up and just driving into the distance away from him 
Um, and yeah, just, just the dynamics to, to deliver a, such a resounding and almost boringly dominant performance like that in yet what, what was only the second best car. In, in what is a new team and that you've arrived at as the reigning two-time world champion, uh, to see that they're all clearly uh, emotionally invested in the other guy who happens to be the same nationality as them, and there's hardly any Spanish-speaking people in the, the whole organization. What um, age was Alonso then? He must have been in mid-20s. 25. He was 25. He was still the youngest world champion at the time, you know? Yeah, exactly. Can you imagine being 25 and people gravitating towards someone else? You're still in that social popularity contest, right? Jeez, yeah. I mean, I think we always are, but yeah, it's like you're 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 buried deep in it back then um, at the age of 25. And but yeah, you could say him winning that title in 06 and then moving to McLaren. Uh, with their new sponsor Vodafone and all this, like the car looked incredible. The preseason testing was encouraging. That must have been like the most exciting uh, point of Alonso's whole career. Like thinking, oh yeah, this is like, I'm Schumacher now moving from Benetton to uh, a big, big team. And I'm going to just establish this dynasty here. And then this guy comes along. He's just as fast as him, if not faster, but Crucially, the team just prefers him, and you can just see it. It's never stated. No one's coming out and saying, uh, we prefer Lewis over you, Fernando. But you pick it up. We're social animals. Like, and I could pick that up as an outsider looking in. I mean, maybe I'm a perceptive person or something, but I think anyone paying attention could, could see that dynamic. So if that's what it looked like from the outside in, can you imagine what it must have been like behind the scenes? Um, and I, I think, again, it wouldn't have been a problem if Hamilton wasn't as good as what he was. It, it, it still ultimately still comes back to the fact that Hamilton was so good. Like, if, if he was another David Coulthard, then the team wouldn't be gravitating towards him anyway. So that's kind of redundant. Um, but yeah, it's just... Uh, it's unfortunate for Alonso that year, like extremely unfortunate. The timing that he had to come up against Hamilton that year couldn't have been worse. Like things could have been so much different. Um, and it, it makes me think of, uh, I was just, sorry, just the last thing to say on this is, um, I think he's Matt Beer, isn't he called? He's one of the guests on the Bring Back V10s podcast. And uh, he was saying that Ron Dennis was going through this spell uh, of just like sort of chatting up drivers and he just wanted uh, to always have like the, the next big driver or whatever, even if it didn't make much sense. So for example, when he got Monto Montoya, who was like clearly not a good fit for McLaren, he, he chatted him up and then they had like one and a half seasons, which just petered out disastrously for Montoya. And I, I kind of feel maybe the same thing happened with Alonso. He's just like, I'm Ron Dennis, I'm uh, this egotist, and I need to have like the most successful driver on the grid, even though in the back of his mind, he knows he's got this guy, Lewis Hamilton, unproven, but who the team ultimately were looking at as being their future, like in a, uh, in a brand sense, commercially, uh, and driving, it all pointed to Lewis Hamilton. Like they had the data, they had the, the people watching him uh, during his GP2 career, they would have known this kid is the real deal. And, uh, you know, if we let, we let go of, of Raikkonen, uh, we're still going to be doing pretty well with, with say, Hamilton and De La Rosa. But no, right. he, he, you know, he got, he got Alonso and 
Well, uh, you, have to, you have to remember that Alonso had signed up to McLaren at the end of the 05 season. Hamilton yes, wasn't even true. on the radar. Hamilton wasn't oh, well, even on the radar. So, I wouldn't um, say he wasn't on the radar. I mean, I, I know what you're saying. Like, yeah, he had already signed Alonso, but yeah, it, it's just, you know what I mean? Not For on Alonso, McLaren's radar. He, he definitely yeah. wasn't on McLaren's radar at the end of 05. He would have been sponsored by McLaren going into the GP2 season. Even then, McLaren had their doubts, and they were... They were still, until Monza in 2006, they were still thinking of putting him alongside De La Rosa. Mm-hmm. You know? So I don't think they, they, Hamilton wasn't proven to them. It's only kind of ham, some, some standout performances from Hamilton in the GP2 season in 06 kind of swayed it towards him. And mm-hmm. also the test that the test in Silverstone in 2006 when De La Rosa saw Hamilton's telemetry through this fast sequence of corners and he went to his engineer. That's the most incredible thing I've ever seen. He's only in the car. 10 minutes <laughs> or he did or he did a lap he did he did a session at first didn't look too good went back yeah. out again on his second run and just did some amazing acrobatics through the corners yeah. and Della Rosa pointed this out to the engineers that that is just incredible I've never seen that before mm-hmm. and that's when Hamza came on the radar sorry go on Ben yeah no that that's fair a fair point I guess I I was um you were saying uh that Dennis was to go back to what you're saying Ben Dennis was uh he like that it was the egotistical thing he had made this decision back in 05 that alonso was going to lead the team and all of a sudden this guy came along and he was the new bright shining guy That's- yeah it's like a magpie he's just like you know oh I, I need that next shiny thing you know <laughs> it's like he just seemed to just uh unconsciously ditch alonso uh it's it's, it's just a, such a um it it's like what could have been for alonso like if if hamilton wasn't on the scene that year Alonso, he he would have won the 07 title, no question. Yeah. Um, he probably then would have won the uh, 08 title. Uh, who knows how it would have played out? I, hypothetically, had been, Rosa been the teammate, had Delarosa been the teammate of 07, that should have been Alonso's title. I would. Yeah. Well, he, I mean, think of how many points that Hamilton took off him. You know that year and uh, and the following season, if that, that's anything to go by. I mean. Yeah, he would have walked that. I mean, yeah. Ferrari had the best, for context again, for listeners, like um, Ferrari had the best aerodynamically uh, designed car in 2007 and 2008. There were certain tracks where the McLaren was better, um, you know, if it had like very traction dependent circuits and ones for braking, like Monaco, like Montreal tight twisty circuits but any corners the any circuits that were full of long duration corners where downforce is king the ferrari was just better and there's no amount of driver ability that can uh can uh can undo that like you know you can't overcome that is what i mean and um there's more time to be gained in the short small corners than there is in the long ones yeah, in the long ones, you just have to wait on the car. You know, you're just like completely beholden to what the car is capable of um, in a long duration corner. And despite the fact that the majority of circuits are full of uh, corners like that, and that on paper, the, the therefore the best car was the Ferrari in 07 and 08, you wouldn't have actually known it to the untrained eye because why does this guy Hamilton keep popping up and winning and beating them? Well, it's because... Hamilton and Alonso are two of the absolute greatest drivers of all time who were effectively in a, a very drivable but only second best car in 07. Uh, and then in 2008, again, it's like Raikkonen was a mixture of, yeah, him just motivation clearly winning, 
and uh, the technical aspect of it, he just could not get those front tires up to temperature. He just faded into the distance, and it was then left up to Massa, who, by the end of that season, it appeared as if Massa had reached some sort of godlike level of driving. When again, it's like his subsequent years, then partnering Alonso at Ferrari, I think uh, showed what Massa's true level was. You know, it's like he was in a rocket ship in 07 and especially in 08. And uh, it was just, it was in 07, it was Hamilton and Alonso's sheer ability that made them uh, not only competitive, but actually like conclusively, um, comprehensively better than the Ferraris by the end of the year, bar two freak results at the end of that season. That, you know, it was the drivers were able to somehow overcome the. Yeah what was the dominant car which was the ferrari exactly but, you know. if if you um if you look at the the 06 mclaren let's say towards the back end of that season there was times where i can put it on pole and it was competitive at certain flash points um mm. that car didn't massively change from 06 to 07 it was fundamentally the same car um with some obviously it was better but yeah. Like, had Alonso or, or Hamilton been in 06 McLaren, they might have made it transcended it more than Raikkonen did that year. Um, yeah. exactly. Like, and Raikkonen sort of drove when the car was was good, it, he drove it pretty much to that level. So, at Spa or whatever, yeah, he, he would get more or less the most out of it. But the rest of the time, no, it completely fluctuated. Whereas Hamilton and Alonso in 07 were completely on it and they were just bringing the neck out of that car. Didn't have as much ultimate pace, but they were still able to overcome the otherwise superior Ferrari. Yeah, exactly. And and that's the point really about to know who's really good in Formula One. The, the reason why we're raving about this 07 season is like yeah. people often talk what's the greatest season in Formula One, and people often say Prost Senna 88, 89, you know. Um what's high, a highly underrated season is 2007. Yeah, and that good. is when you had those two elite drivers in the same car together and for different reasons and circumstances the races played out the way they did but it was a rare moment in history where the two were put in the same car and um you just and to really know who's good you've got a met you've got these two people like at the time in 2007 you have to realize people thought that Raikkonen and Massa were off that same level as Alonso and Hamilton it's only since both those drivers, let's say, both Massa and Raikkonen, who were racking up race wins in the 2007 and 2008 Ferraris, they were paired against Alonso in a car that might have only been good enough for a couple of podiums. Alonso completely, you know, made made a, made a mess of them, and that's why that's how you're able to weave in between who's good and who's great over the period of a decade when you compare them against the yardsticks that they've been put against. That's it for this episode and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to look out for part two where we go through Max Verstappen and his journey to join the greats. Don't miss it.